would like to extend Christian greetings to each one here this morning. It's a new year. I am confident that we've all realized that. And I trust that God has blessed you the start to, new, to new, your new year. We like new stuff. Um, children don't have to be very old before they figure that out. They like their new toys that they get. They tend to play with them for at least a few days before they ignore them. Um, when a child grow, when a child turns four years old, at least in our house, there was excitement over the fact that we get to go to Sunday school. And I'm assuming there's excitement when we turn old, when we get, get old enough to go to school. And then when we turn 16, that one I can remember. Actually, I can remember going to school as well. We're excited when we turn 16. It's brand new for us and, um, it's, it's another step in life that we look forward to. And from there, anytime from six months to 16 years after we turn 16, we, most of us find a life partner, and that's exciting, and it's, it's something new in life, and it's exciting, and then there's, the babies are born, and that's exciting, the grandparents are excited about the babies, and the parents are excited about the babies, and um, on that note, I have become, I have reached new status, I guess you could say, a few weeks ago, I have become not only an uncle, but now I'm a great uncle. It's exciting for Grant, for my dad to become a great grandpa and to see the, my niece and her husband become parents. It's new stuff. We like new stuff. We like new cars, new houses, new things that we get in life. It excites us. We, um, it makes our day a little brighter. It gives us a little more pep in our step. This morning I would like to think, like to have us think back to Becoming a new Christian and where our journey in life has, has gotten us to today. Do we still have that excitement for Jesus that we had when we became a new Christian? Does it still, does it still make our day brighter to be following Christ or has it become a burden to us? I titled the message this morning and, um, it could be, there could be other titles. But I'd like for us to think about how much does your Jesus mean to you today, where, where we're at. Be looking at John chapter 7 and 8 and taking a look at the interaction that Jesus had with the people that he was surrounded with in his life at that time. There was a few different individuals and groups of people that we'll be looking at this morning. One of the groups was the Pharisees. Um, largely argumentative. Um, those were, you could be classed as his enemies. And then there was the Jews that did believe. And then there were some individuals that, that crossed his path that were usually the subjects of healing or, or that were usually the recipients of healing or his mercy and his grace. Now, as a little bit of a pretext to chapter 7 here, John chapter 7, in chapter 6, some of the headlines in chapter 6, I'll just read the headlines. One was Jesus feeds the 5,000. That was a large miracle that he performed. And then he walked on water, something he did for his disciples. And then there was some teaching he taught on being the true bread from heaven. And one thing I noticed in in reading some of 
Jesus' teaching or, or some of the Jesus' words, he often says, verily, verily, when he starts in on a new subject or when he wants to, seems to want to get your attention. And I had to wonder, in our language today, in our English today, what is verily, verily? Um, we don't use that, but I think, I think if we would, if we have something to say that we want someone to listen to that we are, that feel confident about and we're like, this is the truth, listen up. I think we would say, instead of verily, verily, when we're faced with a little bit of, um, when, when we, when we know someone may not believe or someone should listen to us, we say, hey, listen up. You know, well, this is, you know, I believe this to be true instead of verily, verily. But Jesus used those, those words quite often. And it's interesting to read what he has to say after those. And then in verse, the last part of chapter six, a lot of the Jews followed him at one point. Well, after he fed the multitude, they wanted to make him king. And he left them. He departed from their presence because they wanted to take him forcefully and make him king. So there was at least, well, in that instance, 5,000 people, I think, that a large group of people that believed in Jesus and they wanted to, they wanted to follow after him. They wanted to make something out of him. They wanted this to be a movement. In the last part of chapter 6, the, the heading for the last part in my Bible is many disciples desert Jesus. So here was Jesus starting in in chapter 7 after those experiences. I'm not going to read all the verses. I, I would like to read the, the words in red, which are Jesus' words as we go through here. In chapter 5, they were having the feast in Jerusalem. And it seemed like Jesus had possibly gone home after chapter 6. After these things, it says Jesus walked in Galilee. He wouldn't be with around the Jews. He would not walk in Jewry because they were... They were looking for him. They were going to kill him. In chapter 5, For neither did his brethren believe in him. And the verses just before that, they were basically telling him that in verse verse 3 and 4, His brethren therefore said unto him, Depart hence and go into Judea, that thy disciples also may see the works that thou doest. They didn't believe in him, but they were telling him, Well, go down to your disciples, you know, the people that the people that do like you, and, and at least show yourself, do your stuff for them, because they... they it just makes sense that you would be with them. Go down there and, and do your thing there. And then it's followed by verse 5. For neither did his brethren believe in him. Even his own family didn't believe in him. In verse 6, I'm going to read verses verse um, 6 through 8. And Jesus said, My time is not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but me it hateth, because I testify of it, that the works thereof are evil. Go ye up unto this feast, I go not up yet unto this feast, for my time is not yet full come. Jesus' response to his brother, brethren there was an explanation of what he was doing, or what he wasn't doing in this case. He told them to go up, but it wasn't time for him yet. And after that, it says he still abode in Galilee. It doesn't say how long, but we do know, continuing on in the chapter there, that he did go up. In verse 11, we see that the Jews sought him. The Jews sought him at the feast and said, where is he? He was popular enough at this point that the people were looking for him. The people were curious about him. They wanted to see what he, could, what he had to do. And they, but they murmured. There was much murmuring, verse 12, among the people concerning him. For some said, he's a good man. Others said, nay, but he deceiveth the people. 
But notice in verse 13, they didn't speak about it openly. Everyone was, everyone was scared because there was a, there was a fear put on everyone because of what the, the Jew, what the Jews or the Pharisees thought about Jesus and the fact that they were seeking him. Verse 14, Jesus gets to the temple and he begins to teach. Now about the midst of the feast, Jesus went up in the temple and taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, How knoweth this man letters, having never learned? They wondered how does Jesus know what he knows because he hadn't gone through their school of, of being taught, of being advised, of, be, of the scriptures, of, being, of learning the history of the scriptures. So they wondered. Verse 16 through 19. Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. If any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. He that speaketh of himself seeketh his own glory, but he that seeketh his glory that sent him, the same is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. Did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you keepeth the law? Why go ye about to kill me? And we see here, this is the first of, a, of at least three Three incidents in the next two cha- in the rest of this chapter in chapter eight. Well, I'll get into in the next the next part where Jesus speaks here, and he he he's addressing the fact that they were inconsistent in their in their judging of him. He's kind of prepping for that. He challenges them as to why they tolerate their own law breaking and yet and yet seek to put him to death. The people answered and said, Thou hast the devil who goeth, about to kill, who goeth about to kill thee. Because he ended up, Why go ye about to kill me? Kill me in, in chapter 19. Basically, they called him, they called him crazy, insane. Said, who's, who's, who's looking to kill, to kill thee? Jesus answered and said unto them, I have done one work, and all ye marvel. Moses therefore gave unto you circumcision, not because it is of Moses, but of the fathers, and ye on the Sabbath day circumcise a man. If a man on the Sabbath day receive circumcision, circumcision, that the law of Moses should not be broken, are ye angry at me because I have made every man, made a man every whit whole on the Sabbath day? Judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. Now the Pharisees, they had some things of the old law that they did, and they did it like it was commanded to on the eighth day, circumcise a, a, cha- a baby. So they did that, whether it was on Sunday or not. And here, they were being hard on Jesus because he healed a man, performed a work on Sunday. Now we're going to skip the rest of chapter 7 for now and go to the first 11 verses of chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 1. Jesus went into the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again unto the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery, and when they had set her in the midst, they said unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? Notice the trap was being laid there. They were bringing their knowledge of the scripture and... And measuring Jesus up beside it. This they said, tempting him that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. 
And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Has no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Jesus had a big problem with the Pharisees and the way that they judged people. And I don't know what is it, what what is it in this in, in these accounts for us today. But I think I know for myself it's something that I need to work on is the fact of forming opinions about people when I may not have all the de- when I when I don't have all the details. And I've I've become aware of that and I'm trying harder not to be the judge of other people. However, we are commanded to judge righteous judgment. In verse 24 of chapter 7, Jesus told them, Judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. So how to balance judge not that you be not judge with judging righteous judgment. I found an article written... I say article, it's, it's largely a compilation of, of different scripture verses that I'm going to read at this time. Some of his own words, I probably won't, I won't read them all, I may summarize them. But it's written by Roy Davison, and I found it on a website called theoldpaths.com. Judge with Righteous Judgment is the title of the article. Jesus said, Judge not that ye be not judged in Matthew 7, chapter 1. Then he asked the question, Does this mean we are never to judge? Certainly not. For Jesus also said, Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment in John chapter 7, verse 24. So there we see we're commanded to judge, but it's, it's to be a righteous judgment. Now we know what is not a righteous judgment. And that is accusing someone else or judging someone else, telling someone else where they are, that they're wrong for what they're doing when we're doing it ourselves. That does nothing but condemn ourselves. We are commanded to exercise righteous judgment. We are forbidden to judge when we are not qualified to do so. First we will examine forbidden judgment, then commanded judgment. The first area in Forbidden judgment is we may not judge according to appearance. We see that in the verse that we just read in verse 24. This means that we may not judge on the basis of insufficient superficial information. Outward appearance is often deceptive. 1 Timothy chapter 5 verse 24 and verse 25. And now these verses are taken out of the New King, New King James Version. So they may differ a little bit from your Bible's. But it's a, the English is a little plainer, a little easier for us to understand. Some men's sins are clearly evident, preceding them to judgment, but those of some men follow later. Likewise, the good works of some are clearly evident, and those that are otherwise cannot be hidden. That was First Timothy 5, chapter 5, verse 24 and verse 25. Righteous judgment must be based on conclusive evidence. We may not judge 
by the things we see or the conclusions that we draw on our own from our own suspicions. Jesus said, Judge not that you be not judged, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged, and with the same measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck out of your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye? Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck out of your brother's eye. Matthew chapter 7, the first five verses. And we see right there the folly of trying to correct somebody else in an area where we ourselves are obviously lacking, or maybe not so obviously. We, God and ourselves, know if we are lacking or not. Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge, for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice practice the same things, but we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Therefore be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful. Judge not, and you shall not be judged. Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken down, and running over will be put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. Luke chapter 6, verses 36 through 38. The first area that you can't, that we, that we're not to judge is according to appearance. The second area that, the way that we can't judge is in matters of opinion. And I covered that in my last message, um, how we're to deal with our, our differences of opinion. It was interesting to me that I come across this, this in, in preparing for this message as well. But it was also encouraging to me because I see my need for this type of thing. So I'm just going to read the verses they, they have here. Many of them are taken from Romans chapter 14. Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats. For God has received him. Who are you to judge another's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. Romans 14, 1 through 4. And now we move to Romans 14, 10 through 13. But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you, ju- why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us shall give account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. The third point, or the third area that we have that we should not be judging each other, is we may not judge with insufficient knowledge. Paul wrote, But with me it is very small thing that I should be judged by you or by human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I know nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this. But he who judges me is the Lord. Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the heart, and then each one's praise will come from God. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 through 5. 
There's two more ways not to judge. The second to last one is we may not take God's place in judgment. Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? James chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. And the last way is we may not condemn the guiltless by neglecting mercy. That one took me for a little bit of a loop. So we may not condemn the guiltless by neglecting mercy. The idea that the, the thought that I have is so by not showing somebody mercy when there needs to be mercy shown, we're actually saying, well, we're, we're, we're kind of condemning them because we're, we're, we're judging them in our minds by saying, well, you had this coming. That's what you get. Walk away from them. But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. And that's found in chapter 12, verse 7. We must keep these warnings carefully in mind. Now that's on the, on the, on the side of not judging. Now he goes in, now he, the writer addresses the idea that we are, we are commanded to judge. Verse 24, but judge righteous judgment. Judge not that ye be not judged. That phrase is often, we, we usually hear that from someone who is, is, um, not wanting to, it, it needs an excuse for someone to get someone to quit talking to him about what's, about something they need to be, they need to be, that needs to be addressed in their life. It, judge not that you be not judged is often the wailing cry of false teachers and hardened sinners who misapply the verse to ward off censure for their evil deeds. Do not be intimidated by such people, for Jesus has commanded us to judge with righteous judgment. And he has three points here that, that three times where there is, where there is room for calling out, if you will, something in someone's life. It begins with Ephesians chapter 5, verse 11. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the just, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. Proverbs, that's actually Proverbs 17, verse 15. And now we go to Ephesians chapter 5. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. There is a place for righteous judgment. When Christians persist in sin, they are to be judged by their fellow Christians. And he's, we're, we're looking here at the thought of, of judging people that know better and don't do that way, if you want to say it that way. That's the, that's the plain English that I can understand. But Paul explained to the Corinthians, and this is taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 5, be reading from verse 9 through, 9 through 13. Paul is explaining to them what that actually means. What, where we, how we're supposed to deal with these people. As Paul explained to the Corinthians, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean the sexually immoral people of this world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. 
For what have I to do with judging those who also are on the outside? Do you not judge those who are on the inside? But those who are on the outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves that wicked person. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9 through 13. It was interesting to me as I read that and, and contemplated what that meant. That our judgment should be, if you will, it sounds harsh, but our judgment should be reserved for the people that we know, that the, the, the brethren that are not living, that are obviously going against the, the scripture. And that the people in the world around us, the people that it's obvious are not Christians, if you will, what we think of them as far as, as far as for us to go judge them for their, for their lifestyle. We're, we're taught that that's not where our judging should be, should be put to, should, where we should judge. The next point where we are to judge is when Christians come in conflict. Dare any of you having a matter against another go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world be, will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall, shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one who will be able to judge between his brethren? From 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and that was Paul saying to them, you have issues between brethren. The world takes care of their problems. You know, you can judge things. You, you, you know what the scripture says. You know when the world isn't doing what it should do. You should be, there should be among you someone that can judge between two brethren who are at odds. And the last point he has here is, we may not reserve judgment when faced with clear manifestations of evil. Jesus reminded the church at Thyatira, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and beguile my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. So there are, there are places where we are to judge. And then he asked, the writer asked the question, what if false teaching on divorce and remarriage leads God's people to commit sexual immorality? Will God hold us guiltless if we allow such to be taught? And if we fellowship people, Jesus says, are committing adultery. So that gave me some light on, on um, how far to take the judge not that ye be not judged. Because while that is there, Jesus here in, in chapter 7, verse 24, does teach us to, um, to judge a righteous judgment. Moving on in chapter 7 of John, there's one more place where what, I'm, what I'd like to do is, is take the, the points where Jesus in these chapters, where he gives us clear direction on something that we need to do. Like in verse 24, if I'm not mistaken, that was, that was, one of the, that was the first time where he actually commanded something in this chapter. A lot of his words were explaining things about him, where he comes in, what his purpose is in life, and, 
and answers to those who were challenging him. But in chapter, in, in verse 24, and then again we'll be looking at the end, towards the end of the chapter in verse 37, if any man thirst, let him come unto me. We'll be looking at that a little bit later. But in between there, in verse 25 to 27, we see that some of the people from Jerusalem asked the question, if this isn't the person they're, they're looking to kill. And they were surprised that he was here speaking, teaching boldly, because there was people out looking for him. Verse 28, Jesus reiterates again, Ye know me, and ye know whence I am, and I am not come on myself, but he that sent me is true, whom ye know not. But I know him, for I am from him, and he has sent me. And at that point, that was, that was, they were triggered and they sought to take him, but no man laid their hands on him because his hour was not yet come. It wasn't his time yet. And then in verse 31, we have this wave coming again where people believed on him and said, when Christ cometh, will he do more miracles than these which this man has done? They justify their, they justified their believing on him by the miracles that, that they had seen him, that they had heard that he had done. Moving on in 30, 32, they wanted to, they wanted to um, take him. We see here the Pharisees, they had, they knew, they were aware that there was an, there was a, a movement around Jesus for support. But they didn't know how to go about to shut this down. So they sent some officers to take him. In, in, in verse 32, and the chief priest sent officers to take him. And Jesus continued his teaching in verse 33, yet a, little, yet a little while am I with you, and then I go unto him that sent me. Ye shall seek me, and ye shall not find me, and where I am, thither ye cannot come. It's interesting to me that Jesus was speaking, and it's easy for us to see today because we are on this side of, of history. But Jesus would make a point and he would teach on one thing, and the, it just went, it seemed like it went totally over their heads. They didn't, they didn't get it. Then said the Jews among themselves, Whither will he go that we shall not find him? Will, will he go into the dispersed among the Gentiles and teach the Gentiles? They used their own reasoning. Well, so he's saying he's not going to be here long. Apparently he's going to go teach somebody else. He's going to change locations. He's going to go teach somebody else. And I think there's a lesson there. For us, possibly, in that we choose to hear things sometimes, teachings sometimes, and we apply them in, in, a, in a way that it doesn't do us any good. Just a challenge for myself. Do I, when I sit under the, the, the Word, or when I listen to a sermon, or when I read an, an article, do I open myself up to what God wants me to take out of that? Then we get to his teaching of coming unto him and drinking. We'll be, we'll be turning to a few references here. First I'll read verse, verse 37 and 38. This was the last day, the great day of the feast. Jesus stood and cried saying, get the idea that he wasn't talking quietly here. It says he stood and cried. I think he stood up where people could see him and he cried to the people. He, he, he made sure that he was heard. If any man thirsts, let him come unto me and drink. 
He that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Isaiah chapter 12, verse 23. These are prophecies of, of Jesus found in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 12, verse 2 and 3. Chapter 12, beginning of the chapter, verse 2 and 3. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord Jehovah is my strength and my song. He also is become my salvation. Therefore with joy shall ye draw water out of the wells of salvation. Jesus here was telling them to come to him and drink. He was all they needed. If you ever, if you can remember becoming very thirsty, usually in the summertime on the hot days, you tend to be, you, you, you get thirsty. And if you're ever long enough without water when you're thirsty, you remember those times. Well, spiritually, Jesus is enough. Jesus is our water. Isaiah chapter 44, verses 3 and 4. For I will pour water upon him that is thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon thy seed and my blessing upon thine offspring. And they shall spring up as among the grass, as willows by the watercourses. Jesus is enough for all our needs. His spirit will be poured on us. You know, there's a difference between a, a little sprinkle and a pour. If you sprinkle something on something, you're usually just trying to get... Some, if, if, it's, if you sprinkle somebody with water, you're just trying to get their attention, probably teasing them. But if it gets to the point where you pour water on somebody, they're going to get wet and it's going to cover them. Jesus said, "He will, I will pour my spirit upon thy seed and my blessing upon thine offspring. Speaking of the extent of how much Jesus, of how well Jesus covers us, covers our needs. Isaiah chapter 58, verse 11. And the Lord shall guide thee continually and satisfy thy soul in drought and make fat thy bones. And thou shalt be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters fail not. You know, growing up on the farm, I can remember the dry spells that we had when things didn't grow because it was too dry. The corn curls up tight. Everything is just sad looking. The hay hay fields get brown. And then a rain comes and everything perks up. Everybody's happier. Everything is happier. Everything's growing again. In this life, we find those times. We have those times. Life does that to us. There are certain things that happen to us where we need God to cover for us. And God does cover for us. You know, we humans are here for each other. And there's a lot of things we can do for each other. We can make lives easier. We can make the lives of our brethren easier by helping out. But if we don't have Christ, it's really hard for us to ever have enough. Because we'll always be expecting more from people and people can't fill the void of Christ. I have experiences in my life, you have experiences in your lives, where people just don't cut it. We need, we need Jesus. Jesus always understands. Jesus has enough. I can understand 
what it is to lose a mother, to say goodbye to my mother without her being there, with her being already gone. I can understand what it is to be expecting, looking forward to being a dad to a new baby and that baby going on ahead of me. I cannot expect someone that hasn't gone through that to understand that, to cover, to, to be... To be, I can be encouraged by people, but Jesus has to be there for me to turn to. And likewise, we all have experiences in life. We all face things that other people don't. And that's where we need God. We need, we need to be filled with Jesus Christ. We need to know what His teachings are. And we need to allow Him to be our water. To be our drink. Moving on in chapter 7, the last part of the chapter there. Um, some discussion here about who Jesus was. And um, some people were making an argument for Him being the Messiah. There was divided results which ends up in chapter 53, every man going into his own house. Now it is interesting to me in, in, in verse 50 where Nicodemus spoke up, he said unto them, And he was the one that came to Jesus by night, being one of them. Doth our law judge any man before it hear him, and know what he doeth? Here was a man that made a difference. How do I find it for myself when I can speak up to make a difference in life? Do I do that? Um, Ultimately, in in the end, Jesus did. They still did find Jesus, and and he sacrificed his life. They crucified him. At the end of Jesus' life. But for this day, at this time, Nicodemus did make a difference. Going to chapter 8, we did cover the first 11 verses there. Um, I'd like to touch a little bit on the end of the chapter, on the rest of the chapter yet. Where he, um, he speaks of being the light of the world. Jesus is the light of the world. Verses 12 through 20. This incident, the interesting thing about this incident is that it took place where it took place in the temple. Jesus was speaking in a part of the temple known as the treasury in chapter 20, in verse 20, where the candles burned to symbolize symbolize the pillar of fire that led the people of Israel through the wilderness. Jesus calls himself the light of the world. The pillar of fire represented, for the children of Israel, the pillar of fire represented God's presence, God's protection, guidance. And um, Jesus brings that to us today. Jesus took the place of that pillar of fire. He brings his presence. He brings God's presence can be in our lives through the Holy Spirit. And he protects and he guides us. The question is, is he the light of your world? In closing, I have a thought about how that we live in the society we live in. We are in an instant gratification society. Everyone wants everything now. Now, today, in today's day and age, with the with the um, internet, click a few buttons, order something, shows up on your front step. Instead of buying into our instant gratification society, let's depend on Jesus Christ for an ever-present and constant source of enough. Enough of what, you may ask? Enough of grace and mercy for every trial that we may face.
enough strength to overcome every temptation that comes our way. Enough courage to put forth our very best for each responsibility that we find in our lives, that we have in our lives. And enough blessing to make 2020 the best year of your life. Let's kneel for prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity to gather together here today to look into your word. And we just pray that we could be a people that would allow you to guide us, that we would allow you to be everything in our lives, and that we would commit ourselves to studying you and your life and your commandments and then applying them to our lives. Just pray your blessing on those from here that aren't, are not here. Think especially of Eric's at Bible school and the new term starting there. I just pray for each of the students there. I pray that your word could be, could be shown to the children, to the people there and that it could take effect and that seed could be sown and bring forth a hundredfold. Pray also for Claire as he's not here. Pray that you would watch over him and I pray especially that as he struggles with some health issues there that you would heal him that you would give him strength to face what he's what is ahead of him just ask these favors and blessings in your name according to your will amen